Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You're going to miss these things by coming with me to Chaltock 4. I feel I'm asking a lot of you. No, I, I am looking forward to it. Because while you're running around setting up diplomatic security, I'm going to sip Saurian brandy and think about writing my memoir. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Positively Trek Book Club. And for the second book club episode in a row, we have, as a guest host, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, welcome back once again to Positively Trek. Thank you for having me here on the bridge of the Enterprise with you, Dan. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Very good, number one. <laughs> <laughs> I knew one of us would do that at some point. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, that's fitting because the book we are talking about today is uh, a real treat and one I've been wanting to read for a long time. Finally got it read. Uh, Patrick Stewart's memoirs, Making It So, a memoir by, I guess I should say, Sir Patrick Stewart. So uh, really, really excited to get into this one. I had so much fun reading this. How about you? I had a great time reading this. I was telling you before the show, and I'll let others know, um, I would read it, and after like a couple chapters, I'd come running over to my wife and start saying like, oh my gosh, I just reached this part where this happened, or he did this, or that, and I found it interesting. So it typically, I mean, I have different ways I read books, like different places in the house or whatever, but this was the hard copy book, and I uh, we have a little room which used to be a sewing room for my daughter. And now it's just kind of multi-purpose room. And we have a little table in there and I would just sit at that table. I've never read in there before. And I just have it laying on this table with me sitting over it night after night. And I'd come running out of that room. <laughs> my <laughs> wife would be like in the family room and I'd be like, oh, wait, I got to tell you about this one part. <laughs> I feel like our experiences are, are fairly similar on that count. Uh, Nikki was often the recipient of me going, oh my God, I need to read you this bit. Like <laughs> yeah. this bit about Patrick Stewart meeting Sting. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> you have to hear this. <laughs> yes. Those kind of little bits in here are the fun things you got. You just have to share with people because I was surprised by things like that. Yeah. And a lot of them, interestingly, were like stories I'd kind of heard the bare bones version of before, or, you know, probably mentioned at a convention or something and then typed up in an article and then blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I'm getting it third and fourth hand, but getting these stories from the source here, Sir Patrick Stewart, in his own words, and he's able to edit and, you know, really craft the story the way he wants. I loved the experience of reading this and just... I Now, I didn't listen to the audiobook. There is an audiobook where Sir Patrick Stewart reads this, and it, that would be an incredible experience. But even just reading this in the printed word... 
I heard his voice in my head, like the word choice and the style of writing was so specific to Sir Patrick Stewart. It just, it sounded like he was speaking to me as I was reading. Yeah. I didn't listen to the audiobook either, but I'd like to listen to it someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it definitely has his voice on the written word as you're reading it in your head. And also a very more relaxed person than we're used to in Picard himself yeah. because I'm so used to reading Star Trek novels where I'm hearing Patrick Stewart's voice as Captain Jean-Luc Picard. But this is a more laid back, personal Patrick Stewart, right? So the voice mm-hmm. was a little different in my head than when, I lis- uh, when I'm reading the novels. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it sounded like the... I guess, and and he gets into this in the book, the more soft-spoken Star Trek Picard, Picard later on in those quieter moments. Like it, it felt like we were at Chateau Picard in front of the fire, and he was reading the story. You know, Tolaris. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, before we really get into it, I kind of want to talk about our expectations before we started reading it. Uh, we heard, of course, months ago, quite a, quite a while ago that Patrick Stewart was going to be releasing this memoir. What were kind of your expectations when you heard that? What were you hoping for in this book? Oh, gosh. I hope nobody hates me for this. But I was kind of hoping for what we ended up getting. And that was not too much about Star Trek, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, I'd love to hear about Star Trek experiences. But we've heard so much of it through conventions and things and and I wanted to know more about things about him that I didn't know about. And that's that's what delivered in this book. So I was I was very grateful that, yes, there are some Star Trek things in here, quite a few, but it's not as heavy in Star Trek as I thought it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm kind of along the similar path as you there, where I was wanting to know more about the man himself and that sort of thing. And, and I'll be honest, like reading this, I think there was more Star Trek in it than I honestly expected. And I, I think we, or at least I have this image of Patrick Stewart in my head, and it's kind of the uh, immediate post-nemesis Patrick Stewart, I guess, that he kind of comes across as in this book where I always kind of pictured him as like, eh, I don't know about that Picard thing. It was, that was a thing, but I don't, you know, kind of minimizing it. Um, now later in his life, of course, and we know this through Star Trek Picard, he's very much embraced that character and really come around to loving that character. But I think my brain was stuck in that Oh yeah, he doesn't not a big fan of Star Trek. He's probably not going to talk about it very much, but uh he's evolved on that issue quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you said that too because I remember thinking at the time is the publisher going to push for more Star Trek stories even though he mm. probably doesn't want to go there. Mm-hmm. And then when I was start getting into the book and it's talking about his early life, I was thinking at some point as I'm getting maybe like a third through this, I'm thinking, okay, Maybe there will be less Star Trek uh, stories in here. But then he would kind of jump to Star Trek even in his early life and then come back to his early life and then go back to a brief Star Trek thing. And so I think it was just the right amount. But I was surprised that he would say, oh, it reminds me of time years later when I was with Jonathan Frakes. And I'm like, oh, wow, we're going there, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those little bits were were unexpected little, I, I guess, foreshadowings of of what's to come. So, I guess maybe the cynical part of me 
wants to think the publisher said, oh, seed those in there so that, you know, the Trekkies keep reading. <laughs> right. Yeah. It makes you wonder, right? Because he didn't always refer to other things later in his life. I guess maybe he did a couple of times. A few times, yeah. yeah. But the Star Trek ones we definitely notice because, you know, we're us. <laughs> yes, which I'm also interested in talking about because there was one thing in there for sure that really surprised me. But I'm saving that. Me too. I'm wondering if it's the same thing. It probably Probably, is. Probably is. (laughs) We always are on the same page usually. (laughs) For sure. Well, one of the big reasons I wanted to bring up this expectations before we read it is I was just kind of looking around Goodreads for what other people's opinions and thoughts were just to kind of see how close they align with mine. Was this generally well-received, etc. And there was one review and it's just, it's fun to see things from a perspective different than yours and it was basically like oh i picked this up to get a whole bunch of behind the scenes stuff about x-men and there wasn't really very much i was very disappointed i'm not a fan of star trek whatever i'm like huh so like all these people out there have this idea in their head of what patrick stewart is or or what they mean to him or how they came to him whether like yeah and he talks about this in the book where he meets somebody who knows him from the royal shakespeare company but never watched star trek and in this in this case there's this person who knows him from x-men but you know nothing else really and uh so we're all bringing a lot to this book with our expectations and it's interesting to see whether it meets those or whatever. And and I kind of feel bad for this person who wanted, you know, all the behind the scenes X-Men stuff. And there's a little bit, but not very much. (laughs) Yeah. Cause you know, you're right. People see Patrick Stewart differently. We, we think of Patrick Stewart first as Star Trek, Jean-Luc Picard, Mm -hmm. but yeah, there are others that are X-Men fans and, oh, it's Professor Xavier. Right. And, And maybe they know who's on Star Trek and maybe they don't, which is hard to imagine that somebody doesn't know (laughs) that he was on Star Trek. But like you said, there's examples in here of that where people, even after he's been on Star Trek for a decade or more, people still didn't know him from Star Trek. They knew him from something else. And yeah, if somebody goes into a store and sees this, oh, Professor Xavier. Oh, it's probably behind the scenes of (laughs) X-Men. But it's not or... Even the title, Making It So, Mm -hmm. could lead somebody to believe, oh, it's all the behind the scenes of Star Trek, like William Shatner's memories or movie memories, right? Where it was stories of behind the scenes. And so you really got to read the inside cover to know what you're getting. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, like you said, and, and, and I agree, what we got was something I really wanted. And that was delving deep into the life of this man who we've watched on our our television screens and our movie screens for years and years. And uh, let's uh, start at the beginning, I guess, growing up in Mirfield, England. And and this is, this reminds me, actually, I have a friend who did listen to the audiobook of this and it was fun kind of comparing notes because he came over the other day um, to pick some stuff up and he saw the book there and he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm listening to the audiobook And, um, I mentioned, you know, some of the pictures in the middle and he's like, oh shoot, I don't get those with the audiobooks." So he, you know, looked through the pictures and was enjoying that and then kind of flipped through and he's like, oh, so that's how you spell Muirfield. That's not, not how I would have expected. And it occurred to me, it's funny because I've read all these words and I'm sure there's a bunch of them that I'm pronouncing wrong in my head. Cause I, I haven't heard them, but he's heard all these words, but doesn't necessarily know how any of them are spelled. And I'm like, it's, it's crazy how we can 
have the same product, like the same media, but have completely different experiences of it. I thought that was interesting and I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, even when you said Mirfield, um, I, when you first said that, I was like, is that how it's pronounced? I have, I don't know. It <laughs> might be Murfield. It, I, I'm not sure. I can't even remember how my friend said it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, years ago when I was in uh, at Oxford back, this is how long ago this was, 1986. And uh, my uh, my student group, my class, wherever we were going to Bath, and we had so many people say, "It's not Bath, it's Bath." Would you get it right? It's Bath. So we always say, "Like, oh, we're going to Bath, we're going to Bath." But I mean, that's just the English pronunciation. Yeah. But it could be like it's just the accent, Murfield, yeah. <laughs> Murfield, you know, or something, Murfield, Murfield. Like I don't know. We say Murfield. Like who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I I would love to hear the the audiobook at some point, but you're going to have to those of you who have listened to the audiobook and we mispronounce a hundred things, here's the apology in advance. Uh, we can't help it. <laughs> no, I mispronounce things all the time. Well, yeah, so like I said, we we get a deep dive into his early life. We learn about his dynamics with his family, his father and mother and his brother. Uh and and a lot of I guess for the Star Trek fans who watched Star Trek Picard, especially season two, we're getting some insight into maybe where some of that story idea came from and, and some of those things. I think there's a lot of in here that's not like explicitly Star Trek, but those of us who have watched that know that Patrick Stewart had an influence on the storyline and, and that sort of thing. We're kind of seeing the seeds of that here. Yeah, I I think... You're right. There was things about this that reminded me of some backstory that they built into the Picard character. It's very hard to talk about this because I always have to think Picard or Stewart. Who, which one am I talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I found the beginning of this really fascinating, pun intended, I guess, because I really found his, I guess what I'm trying to say is the environment that he grew up in, not just his family life, but just the town, Northern England in the 1940s. That whole backstory got me hooked right away mm-hmm. because, I mean, they're living in this home that's just, you know, basically a room with two rooms, up, two bedrooms upstairs and then a bathroom outside, an outhouse, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no real kitchen, more of a fireplace, you know, I mean, it's just – yeah. That kind of living, it's not the chateau that Picard grew no, up in. <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> you know, but the dynamics of the family are similar. Yeah, this was something that I, I found also very fascinating because it's so far removed from my experience. And uh, for a lot of people reading this, I'm sure they can very much relate to how Patrick Stewart grew up and the environment he grew up in. I and many others are definitely not of that uh, of that persuasion. We, I have no idea what it would be like. I I never knew that kind of uh, as as Patrick Stewart says this this environment that gave him in later life a poverty mindset, right? And how he lives and that sort of thing. Um, interestingly, and I haven't talked to my mom about this. She's a big Star Trek fan as well, and is you know wanting to borrow this novel as soon as we're done recording, basically, and not novel, borrow this book as soon as we're done recording. I'm curious to see how she relates to that because she's told me stories about, you know, 
going outside in minus 40 weather here in Northern Alberta to the outhouse in the house that she grew up in and stuff. So I'd, I'd be interested to know what that kind of comparison is like and, and how she uh, experiences those chapters. But yeah, for me, very far removed from anything I know. Yeah. And how he would just, you know, walk through town to different places, had a very small town feel to it. You know, they know their neighbors, just their little neighborhood area was definitely a community where everybody knew one another. And I found myself throughout this book, especially the first half of the book, going on Google and looking up things. Like I would look up pictures of his house, of his community, of his town, like all these things, like so many things that he would mention. I wanted to see what it looked like. I wanted to see where it was. I wanted to see if it was still there. You know, there were so many things like that throughout this book that I kept looking up. Yeah, for sure. I, I love that we can do that in this day and age. I, I did that a lot too. Like when he's talking about the views of the the English countryside that he really admired, I was, I was trying to find like where I could find good pictures of that and stuff. So that's really cool. Yeah, we get a lot of stories of his early uh, days in school as well. And this is something that I've come to realize later in life by what I remember. Um, I have this, this like theory that injustice is something that we that just gets burned into our brains. Like I remember when I was in grade five and uh, we were sitting on the floor in the grade five class. I can remember this with picture perfect clarity, how this kid behind me, uh, kept kind of hitting me in the back and making me yell and, and I'd turn around to, you know, tell him to stop it. And the teacher kept yelling at me and I kept trying to tell him, no, no, the, the kid behind. And finally he said, you know, get out of the classroom, go to the office kind of thing to me. And I'm still like, it's burned in my brain, the injustice of that. And so a lot of the stories, or at least one in particular that really obviously sticks in Patrick Stewart's mind is this incident where he and a, a fellow classmate get basically beaten by this headmaster for this incident that they had no culpability for, they were not responsible for. And the injustice of that, like when an adult doesn't believe you and blames you for something, like I feel like that's just such a formative thing in people's lives. And like I was angry for Patrick Stewart at that part of the book. Yeah, I, I definitely have similar stories like that. I won't go into them, but one in particular, I, I won't go through the whole event, but what eventually happened was the next day I was called to the vice principal's office and I was new to the school mm. and I was in 11th grade. I was 16 years old, never been in trouble really before, you know, and now I'm in this new student in this new school and I'm being called to the vice principal's office, and I'm not thinking I'm in trouble for anything. And then come to find out, they're asking me about this event that happened the day before. And I told them the story, and he said, which I didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And he said he believed me. And he said, I believe you because we also called in the girl who was also in that event, and she told the same story. So I believe you. But the teacher wrote you up, so I have to give you detention. You have to stay after school anyway. What? Yes. And I was <laughs> devastated because I'm like, I've never been in trouble and I'm getting, he even believes me and I'm still, and it's that injustice. Like I had oh. to stay after school, which isn't that big of a deal. But for me, mm -hmm. I was like, how is this possible? I'm, uh, I'm a hooligan now. Ah, you know. <laughs> and he believed me, but yet still got in trouble, you know? Yeah. Oh. 
yeah, I, I, I feel like, and I'm, I'm sure this is nothing new. I'm sure, you know, therapists will back me up a hundred percent on this. Like, oh yeah, that's like a traumatic thing in your brain that influences, you know, but, uh, yeah, the, the all the, the events that he recalls with, as, as far as we know, and as far as he's concerned, perfect clarity that he relates in this book. I just, he, he really has this way of putting you there and putting you in his shoes, which I found it's something that I feel some writers just aren't good at, but in this book, I was like standing right next to him as he was going through all of these things. I love that. Well, speaking of injustice, I, I want to talk about his father. Um, mm-hmm. I knew that his father had been abusive. I didn't know much details about it, but I was surprised that he didn't really spend much time on that. Like, I almost felt like, I mean, not that he should, but I was expecting it to be worse. I mean, it sound, that, that sounds bad, but it sounds like he, his father hit him once, but it was mm. more that his father physically abused his mother. Yeah. But honestly, any abuse is bad, but I was expecting it to be worse than that. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what did you think of that? I kind of, I, I could be wrong, but I felt like there was a lot left unsaid there yeah i feel like he kind of alluded to it a few times and talked about it explicitly once or twice but i feel like it might just be something he didn't dwell on too much in this other than the effects that it had but i feel like that whole time it was kind of an undercurrent there of that happening that like he referred to a couple times but didn't want to really dwell on if that makes sense and i i don't know if that's actually the case or just the impression i got but i feel like it was worse than what is said here or like it it almost is reading between the lines that it it feels like it was just an ever-present thing the whole time and then he got out of there yeah yeah i think you're right because i i i kept feeling like it was building towards a chapter that was going to be devoted to it and how much he maybe hated his father and all these things that he had done. And it it just seemed like he would just, he would just touch upon it and then move away from it. And yeah, that shouldn't be the focus of the book, but he did say later on essentially that he hated the man, but loved the man, you know, at the same Mm -hmm. time. And I think that's probably true in a lot of abuse situations where it's a love hate type of situation that, you know, he kind of was hoping his father would, you know, just die and go away. But at the same time, mm-hmm. looked for his approval and enjoyed the fact that his father was starting to see some of his successes, you know. So I, I was just expecting a little bit more of that. And I think you're right. It's he hinted at it enough and gave you enough of it. But um, I think he yeah, he needs to talk about his story and not so much about his father's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Kind of the, the impression I got from that for sure. Well, he also posi- positioned his father as a product of his environment, you know, World mm-hmm. War II and, and, you know, and, and the poverty and whatever. So, you know, not that he's making excuses, but it's just, un- you know, I think he's also saying, I kind of understand the man, mm-hmm. but it doesn't give him the excuse to do what he did. Yeah, absolutely. I, I find that is a very common paradox about relationships between fathers and sons, especially, right? Like whether that's in real life or portrayed in media and that kind of thing, that there's, there's that, that disparity between 
you know, the love you can have for someone and the, the amount you resent them for X, Y, and Z. Right. And I, I found it interesting too, that later on in his career, in his acting career, he kind of noted the times where his father was coming out of him yes. a little bit. And, you know, he never really put a value judgment on it. It wasn't bad or good. It was just like, oh, oh, I see. This is, this is my father in me. And I found that really fascinating too. Yeah. Yeah. I see it's those personal stories that I find interesting. And even when we read the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko, I find myself enjoying the earlier years more interesting than the later years when I read a book. And that's the same with this too. Even though later I enjoy the stories about, you know, Star Trek and X-Men and other things in his career, I found the first half or two thirds, first two thirds of the book more interesting because it establishes what made the person that they are today. I know who they are today for the most part, but seeing the roots of that and seeing how that influences things later in their lives, which he portrays a lot in here, I just found really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot to kind of delve into there. So we've got, you know, kind of the the early bits of his career as well, where he's he's going to school and he's uh, he's working for like at one point a furniture company. He's doing uh, reporting for kind of a local paper. And, you know, we know this is going to build to him being an actor at some point. And there's little seeds there and little things that encourage him along the way and stuff and how at first he's like, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's no way to pay the bills. I need a job job, you know, like, yeah, I, I found that interesting that those little seeds of him becoming an actor are planted there, even though uh, it, he doesn't think his life is headed in that direction to begin with. This is the part I really was getting into because two reasons. One, I mean, I've been doing more stage work of course, more comedy related, mm -hmm. but I'd like to do more dramatic pieces. And I'm surrounded by actors who do this professionally. So they have a similar story, I guess, to Patrick Stewart of trying to go into that career. But um, at the same time, I mentioned earlier in 86, I spent a summer at Oxford studying British theater and toured around mostly Southern England um, London and Oxford and didn't, you know, wherever, but, um, doing different theater things. And so there were many things that he was telling stories. I was like, oh, I've been there. Oh, I know where that is. Oh, I remember that. And that again, why I was starting to Google things just to look at these things. But what I found interesting about this part is how much theater was available to him in this town and neighboring mm -hmm. towns. Like where I live right now, I'm in the suburbs of Atlanta, and anytime I have to do anything theater related, I have to drive into the city most of the time. Yeah. There isn't like all these theaters peppered in these small towns around this area. And the fact that he grew up in an area where he could do theater in his own town and neighboring towns at, you know, in his teens and get that experience and that training and all that was just really interesting to me. And I just I, w I found myself being a bit jealous because I was like, wow, I wish I would have had that opportunity. I mean, I didn't grow up around Atlanta, but was in my teens. I was There was some theater around where I lived in Pennsylvania. But I mean, I just, I just thought that was really interesting how 
he was able to give – I guess the arts are, were appreciated more, especially in that part of the country, northern England, and also at that time, that period of time. Mm-hmm. That theater was more prominent, that there were so many opportunities to find acting in his life and how he tried to squeeze it in between the newspaper and these other jobs that he was having, which – he had to do because then I started reading about education in England. So at 15, he finished school. But then you have a choice to do something for the next two years, like a an internship type situation. And so he chose to go that direction. And I just found all that to be interesting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I It felt like uh, I, I guess they didn't have Netflix then. To, right. <laughs> you know, local theater. That was kind of where you went to go get entertained and and. Yeah, I I loved that whole culture of that. And I feel like he did a a pretty good job of speaking to his audience, right? Like, because most of us didn't grow up in the north of England and don't know about all this stuff. But, uh, you know, he catches us up pretty well with immersing us in that culture. And yeah, I would love to be able to experience local theater like that. Not not as an actor or anything like that, but even just as a as a patron and going and like that would be incredible to say, "Oh, what's what's playing this weekend?" Well, at this theater they're doing Merchant of Venice and at this one they're doing Death of a Salesman. Ooh, okay, let's go check that, you know. That would be really fascinating. <laughs> that was another interesting thing is I felt this novel was written towards Americans. For the most part, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I'm sure if you look at the numbers, <laughs> right? Like yeah. the sales numbers, he he would know, he would be told by the publisher who the primary audience is. <laughs> yeah. So us reading here, you know, in the US and you in Canada and stuff, I felt like he was speaking towards, you know, the audience overseas. So I'd be interested to know what it felt like somebody reading this, especially in England, because I felt like his voice was more towards us than them mm. because he was explaining things like, you know, just so you know what, how it works here. Yeah. I'd be curious, somebody more in tune with that world or growing up at that time would, you know, would they get bored by some of this? <laughs> right. That's what I was wondering too. Like, oh yeah, I know what it was like back. Yeah. You know, I know those towns. Yeah. I know about, you know. Uh-huh. I know everybody, I know several people who grew up like that, you know. <laughs> or would it be like, Triggering the nostalgia. Right, yeah. yeah. The, the memories, yeah. Exactly. Hmm, interesting. So, yeah, I'd like to know from somebody who's especially grown up in England what they thought. So, uh, one part I enjoyed was this uh, this teacher who basically kind of takes Patrick Stewart under his wing and says there's this this acting retreat, I guess, or, or, or I can't remember what it was called, but this kind of workshop that happened over the course of a few days that you traveled away to. And... It's not just, you know, for, for young people. In fact, it's explicitly not for young people. It's for, you know, there's all age groups there that are, that are attending this, but you have to be a a certain age, which Patrick Stewart is like two or three years younger than, um, but you know, gets to go along and go in this. And I feel like, uh, there's this, this, I, I can't remember what book I read this in, but it was talking about all of the the people who are hugely successful in their fields and the common trope is that it's all, you know, their hard work and pluck and determination. And that's a hundred percent of what does it. But this, this guy was saying it's also a lot of luck and a lot of just uh, things aligning and, and people in the right place at the right time. And I really feel like 
uh, Patrick Stewart was absolutely in the right place at the right time with the right people. And, and just by sheer luck being recognized by this teacher and, and, and put into this program, uh, I thought that was really fascinating. And the other thing that I love about this book, and this will come up again later is, uh, he makes no pretensions about that. He acknowledges how lucky he has been and how it's not just this story of singular determination and hard work. It is a story of, uh, of luck. And he seems very humble when he's talking about his opportunities and how lucky he has been to be afforded them and stuff. I, I really found that, uh, really refreshing after reading some other people who are very like, it's all on me. I'm the best kind of thing. He is very much not like that. Yeah, he's not right. I mean, I think that's why I like the book even as much mm-hmm. as I do, because he, in a lot of ways he's like, who me? Wait, you want me in this? You want me to do that? <laughs> and then of course there's the drive of, well, I want a bigger role. I want to get the lead someday, but you know, just, yeah, he seems very humble about like, Hey, they put me in this program and I was two years younger than I was supposed to. So we just lied about my, and people were just carrying him along. And yeah, there was a lot of luck and being at the right place at the right time or knowing the right people or whatever it was. And there really weren't many failures. I mean, really everything that he went to go, he got in for the most part, you know, his talent, of course. I mean, people are recognizing his talent, so that has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think – I get the idea that he just didn't really – my perception is he didn't really see his talent as much as others did in the early years. You know, I think it was more that he was enjoying what he was doing and others were recognizing that he's got the talent. And I think that's why he was surprised because he's just like, what? Yeah. I'm just doing this for fun. What? You think I'm that good? Wait, you're going to put me in this? You're going to recommend me for that? Okay. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side of that too is like we see the hard work he's putting in too, which of course is going to result in like when he talks I, – I loved when he talked about, you know, getting in the head of a character and, and studying for, you know, hours like, oh, how would I – how would I feel if I was in this situation and stuff and um, I mean as, as someone who's not an actor or not part of that world and I, I think a lot of us – you know, look at actors and think that what they're doing is really easy, right? Oh, you get up on, on a stage and pretend to be someone else. How hard is that? Like I can use my imagination, but it's so much more than that. And like when he talks about, you know, looking at a Shakespeare character who's been interpreted by thousands of actors over hundreds of years, like the character has been done a million times. Um, but he's looking for some new angle on it or like some new and interesting way to present it. That is so cool to me. And it's clear that like he puts in the hard work for this stuff too. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, again, I would just love to talk to the man. (laughs) I'd love to study under him. You know, it's just, it made me again, realize how much I'd like to do drama. Because mm. I've been doing so much comedy and I keep saying to my friends, again, who are actors, it's like, I want to do some drama. And some people look at me because they're just like, well, wait, you're always doing comedy. They're like, seriously? You want to do drama? And I'm like, yeah, because, you know, comedy's fun. But at the same time, to your point, it's like going deep and really learning that character. And like you said, 
finding where they are in their head and then bringing your unique perspective to that, right? And, and it's just, to me, that's always really interesting. And I love watching performances like that and seeing a different interpretation from someone. And even when, you know, sometimes they remake a film and people are like, ah, oh, that doesn't be, well, I don't know. I'm kind of interested in seeing how it's done differently, the different interpretations, you know? So yeah, there was so much he was saying in here that was making me go, I'm going to quit my job and start doing acting <laughs> full time. <laughs> well, and I mean, when he, we're, we're jumping around all over the place, but I, I found it fascinating just not being part of that world at all when he talks about being in the Royal Shakespeare company and this one director is like, Oh, he reimagined this Shakespeare play. And instead of this scene here, they moved this scene here and did this instead. And I'm like, you can do that. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> well, and then later in the book, and I don't recall the line or, or I think it was something maybe from King Lear. I, I, I don't remember. Maybe it's Hamlet. Anyway, somebody told him to emphasize a certain word mm -hmm. and it changes the meat. What was that? Ian? Or, yeah, I think it was Macbeth and it was tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yes. And it was emphasize the and. Yes. The and is the most important part of that. Yeah. Oh, yes. See, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so good. You know, stuff I never thought of, stuff Patrick Stewart never thought of until somebody said that to him. That's I love those stories for sure. But that's what's so cool is like if you get a script or something, like read it the way you would read it, but then do something like that. Like find a word that really doesn't sound like it would mean anything. The word and. Okay, emphasize and? It's just and. But do it that way and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, that really changes what it, the mm. meaning of that, you know. Oh, so good. So there's one story and I still find myself thinking about it from time to time and I'm just like, what the... I, okay, so he's working with an actor on stage and this actor keeps doing his part like he's bored and like, oh, oh, you said, okay, and continues on and enraging Patrick Stewart. Like he's getting so mad at this guy because he's not giving him what he needs in the scene. And, you know, the audience apparently is loving the dynamic, according to the director, but Patrick Stewart is just hating this and finally like confronts him in the dressing room. And it's very visceral. Like in the book, he says he puts his hands around the guy's throat and beats his head against the door. <laughs> and then this actor chokes out that he has cancer and he's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And he spends the whole night like just in anguish over how he's treated this man. And and then he finds out that it was a lie. And he was just like, <laughs> I still think about that. I'm like, what? <laughs> what the hell, man? That was the weird. Actors are weird. Oh, man, I know it. <laughs> that was weird. That Yeah, that was, it was so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, yeah, I know I'm being a jerk. Okay, it's because I have cancer. No, I don't. You know, <laughs> like what? Like, oh, my God. How could you? I don't know. That was so weird. Like, I, I still think about that and be like, what the hell was that about? <laughs> oh, but you know what else is weird? And we're just talking about luck. Remember the whole thing about Paul McCartney and his car? Yes. I wanted to talk about that for sure. What the heck? <laughs> like, I'm telling you, that's luck right there. Because what, Patrick Stewart was dating this girl or I can't remember. And she was 
friends or knew somebody who knew Paul McCartney. And, and then Stewart <laughs> says like, oh, I wouldn't mind. Oh, they, yeah, he had he had said to he his cast. the car. Yeah, yeah. He, I would love to drive this type of car. And then she knew Paul McCartney had that ca- car. He came to the show and he goes, oh, I, hear, I can't remember the car. But hey, I hear you like to, you know, would like to drive this car someday. <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, well, come on. I got one out here. And she puts him in the front seat and they're driving around town. You know, like, what the heck? <laughs> and this is what, like 1965 or something in the, like the height of Paul McCartney and the Beatles career. It's wild. And I love that, you know, Paul McCartney is like, a, you know, open it up, try it out, like push the pedal to the metal. And Patrick Stewart's like, I'm all I'm going to be known for in my entire life is killing Paul McCartney. If I screw this up. <laughs> I know. I told my wife, I was telling my wife that story. And before I got to that part, she said, oh my gosh, I'd be afraid that I'd get in a car wreck and kill Paul McCartney. I'm like, that's what he was afraid of too. <laughs> Well, and I love when he picks that up years later, too, that, you know, he was not expect. Again, this is the humbleness of Patrick Stewart. He's been Picard by this point, like later in his life and stuff. And he's thinking that Paul McCartney's not going to recognize him. And he's like, oh, Patrick, you know, you drove me around whatever that one time. And he's like so honored that Paul McCartney remembered him and. They, they became the, the Knights of the Round Table that night was the joke that he told and stuff. Yeah, because so. Ringo Starr – yeah, I think it was Ringo Starr was yeah. – Yeah, and that was in Los Angeles like whatever, 20 or 30 years late. Like who would think that Paul McCartney is going to remember that you one, that one night yeah. from – couple two or three decades ago remembers you or whatever and yeah they're in a restaurant and they all hey we're all sirs we're on nights at the round table (laughs) it's just crazy without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done at Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of Positively Trek. We truly do appreciate each and every one of our listeners, and I'd like to especially thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you to our Constitution Class supporters, Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of Positively Trek and join our crew, please go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get early access to episodes, exclusive content, shoutouts, associate producer credits, ad-free episodes, and more. Again, that's patreon.com slash positively trek. Thank you all and live long and prosper. So uh, that's a good place to transition into all of the, uh, the name dropping sort of in this book name dropping, but in a humble way where he's, he's known all of these people that like either it was early in his life, they were going to become celebrities or later in his life, they already are celebrities that he's meeting them. But like, you know, working as a, as a kid with Brian blessed, like that was cool. I wasn't expecting that. And then the pictures in the middle, you can actually see a young Brian blessed in one of those photos. Uh, that's cool. And then, you know, the list just goes on and on, right? Like David Warner, um, even like 
uh, as as a young person in the Royal Shakespeare Company, Malcolm McDowell right. was apparently a, like a background player years before they ever met on Generations and scores of people whose names I can't even remember right now. There's so many of them. Yeah, I can't remember <laughs> them all either. But yeah, I mean, it's I guess you could say in some ways theater in England is a small world. And, and you know, these either they were up and coming people that he occasionally ran into or knew of and saw that performed and then got to perform and know them later or um, people who were already well-established and uh, his paths would cross with them. But yeah, you know, I think it was Marina Sirtis at one of the conventions in Las Vegas. I remember her talking about being an actor in the UK is different than in America. I remember her and Gates McFadden kind of got into an argument about it. Now that I think about it, but she was saying basically like in England, it's like people go into acting because they just want to act. Like it's, they're not thinking about being famous. It's just, it's the craft where she felt like more in Los Angeles, especially people are doing it. Oh, because they want to be famous. And of course, Gates McFadden is like, no, 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 that's not always true, but you know, which it's not. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's, um, very much a, a small world in the theater community in England, especially for those who are like really devote all their time to it. Of course, they're all going to cross paths at some point, especially in the Royal Shakespearean Company. I mean, I mean, even David Tennant was brought up later that Patrick Stewart did stuff with, you know? Yeah. Um, and by the way, again, I've been to the Royal Shakespeare Company when I was there, you know, in college and got behind the scene tour, stood on the stage. And then I'm like, as I'm reading this, I'm like, ooh, I've stood on the stage where Patrick Stewart performed. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. And when I went, I saw uh, uh, The Winner's Tale, which is not a mm. well-known Shakespearean play, but he mentioned it several times in here that he performed he did, in yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I did not see him in it, though, at the time. He had already – I think he had done it like four years prior to that. There's so many great – stories of him being in the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I, I love that like he when he starts out, he kind of is relegated to the lesser productions or he's kind of, you know, small, small parts. But then when he starts getting lead roles, it's in the smaller productions, not in the big ones. And um, I loved his talking about um, being in the Two Gentlemen of Verona in 1970. Uh, and the dog that was his co-star yes. in that production. Um, there's a great photo. If you have the hard copy book of this, there's a great photo of him as Lance and this dog as Crab, his his faithful compa companion. Uh, they're great photo. And I, I love that story. That was so hilarious on one hand, but also really sweet on the other. But I will say at the end of that story, were you like me just like, why didn't you keep the dog? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, it was great. We bonded so well. We had a wonderful time. And I returned him to the the foster care or whatever. And it's like, oh, <laughs> okay. I know. Keep the dog. I, he really liked you. <laughs> I expected him to say, since we fell in love with the dog, we kept him and he lived his final years with us. <laughs> but no. Oh, we were done. We returned him. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I often wondered how he fared after that. <laughs> hmm. Oh, well. I'm like, oh, dude. <laughs> but yeah, even oh. his romance at that time, he got married and uh, they were mm -hmm. living there in Stratford-upon-Avon and and. Again, I'm just like, oh, what a life that would have been just to live there and work in the theater. And 
out in the countryside. Rebuilding your fireplace. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, that was interesting too, because that's a callback to his youth of learning how to, to brick build mm-hmm. basically, you know, because his odd jobs he had done growing up. Yeah. Like under the list of skills that Patrick Stewart has, I wouldn't have thought that mixing the perfect brick mortar would be <laughs> in it, but what do you know? That's, that's something he knows how to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining the first time he hung out with the cast of the next generation, they all get cast. They all go out for like dinner and they're all talking about their backgrounds. And he's talking about, Oh yeah. I remember mixing the mortar and all, blah, blah, and all these stories. And they're like, what the heck, where did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> Warning unknown Shakespearean actor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, he's experiencing success in the Royal Shakespeare Company. He's getting bigger and bigger roles. And uh, he's kind of, interestingly enough, feeling a bit restless. This is something that kind of seems to come up a lot in his life where he's, you know, he he kind of focused on the Royal Shakespeare Company as the goal. Like that was what he wanted more than anything. But you know, after a few years, he's kind of looking for something else, looking at other things and kind of putting his name out there a little bit in Hollywood, but not looking necessarily for stardom, right? This thing that Marina Sirtis was kind of talking about that people don't go into this to kind of be stars in England, but he has an agent in Hollywood and every once in a while he kind of gets uh, called out for different things and directors in Hollywood are starting to notice him on stage as well. And David Lynch notices him in a play, not as he actually is though, but as heavily made up as this character in, in, I can't remember which play that he was doing, but decided that he wanted him for Dune, of course. And a lot of us have seen Patrick Stewart in Dune as Gurney Halleck in uh, the David Lynch uh, production of that. That story was really fascinating how David Lynch was just like, wouldn't talk to him and would barely look at him. And he's like, what's going on? Why does this man seem to hate me? He was like, I must have this actor. And then now that I'm here, I'm getting snubbed. That was fascinating. And and the way it's written too, I love that he doesn't give us the answer for a little bit. We're kind of reading going like, what's going on here? What What's this all about? Yeah, because that's what he was going through. He couldn't understand mm-hmm. why the cold shoulder. They flew him to Texas to meet with David yeah. Lynch. You know, he was in England. They you know got this call, hey, come to Texas, meet with him. And he's just kind of getting this cold reception from him. He gets cast. He's in this film. But he's like being ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, the director's talking to other people and it's just – and finally, he goes out to dinner, I guess, with, I don't know, one of the producers or assistant directors or whoever she was. And she's like, OK, I know you probably don't know this, but basically there was confusion when they were at that theater in England years ago. He had asked, he saw somebody backstage that was in, in the play and said, what, remember, I want to remember his, that guy's name. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, yeah, Patrick Stewart. What well, was the wrong name? It was the wrong actor. What? It was actually Patrick Stewart, but he was under heavy makeup and had long hair oh, okay. and, and all this stuff. That's yeah. right. So, yeah. Because I remember when I read that at first, I thought, oh, no, he got the wrong person. It was a completely different person. But it's it's, it's a little unclear. But then you're like, oh, wait, no. It, he He's like, it was me, but I was under all this makeup. And if we'd only known like a little bit of makeup 
and a change in how I was performing <laughs> would have been like, he would have been, he would have got that guy. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, he shows up in Texas and David Lynch is like, that's not who I wanted, <laughs> but I'm stuck with them <laughs> because they had another actor in that part that all of a sudden wasn't available. And then they had to do this now. They couldn't wait, you know? And, and they'd already signed that contract yeah. too. Like he basically sight unseen was like, sign him, do it. I want, that's who I want. Yeah. So again, he kind of lucked into the movie, which is interesting too, because he didn't really want to pursue film, you know, or television or anything. But yeah, I mean, what actors do, they put themselves out there anyway. And as we go along, of course, we know what happens in his career, but that was never really the goal, you know? I love the stories that came out of Dune. Like it's, it sounded cool, like him talking about the people that he's working with, but then everybody getting excited that Sting has been cast and is going to be on the film. And he has no idea who this guy is. And, uh, that whole conversation, I had to read that to Nikki. That was so much fun where he's like, uh, Oh, you, you play an instrument. He's like, uh, yeah, I play the bass. It's like, Oh, I never understood why, why somebody would carry around that huge thing all the time. And he's like, Oh no, not the double bass, like a bass guitar. And he's like, Oh, are you in a group? Like, yeah. I'm in the police. Oh, you play for a police bl- band. How splendid. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was great. I mean, that's kind of like earlier where we say where some people don't know Patrick Stewart was in Star Trek, right? It's the same kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because he was so into classical music and such that he wasn't paying attention to the current pop Mm -hmm. music. And then similarly, you know, when his agent in the U.S. calls him and says, uh, why does Gene Roddenberry want to speak with you? (laughs) He's like... Gene Rodenberry? I don't, who is that? What? I don't, I, I haven't the foggiest idea. Yeah. <laughs> Again, so, luck. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is where we're getting into, of course, Star Trek, the next generation. And, you know, we're not going to talk a huge amount about this because a lot of these stories we've heard, some we haven't though which are interesting and other stories that, you know, we've heard, like I said earlier, little bits of, but you know, they're getting elaborated on here. We're learning a lot more about them. We we'd heard that he lived out of a suitcase for the first year because the thinking was, it wasn't going to last beyond that. And, um, I really enjoyed his attitude towards it here though, where, A lot of actors might come into something like this, be told by everyone around them, this is probably not going to last. Be like, okay, kind of, you know, phone it in, get a paycheck for a year, move on. But he's like, no, like I'm committing myself to this role. I'm going to study as hard as I would for any other role that I've ever had. And I'm going to really put in the time and the hours. And I think that shows like that comes across no matter what actor you are, if you're putting in that kind of effort and Picard was so Picard from the beginning, right? Like, um, say what you will about the first season of the next generation and a lot has, and can be said about it, but Patrick Stewart as Picard is just on from day one. And I think a big part of why that show continued, it can be put on his shoulders there. I remember hearing him say this once before, and he mentions it in the book that he, approached it very much like Shakespeare, that the captain's chair is the king's throne, you know? Mm -hmm. And so his performance is very almost Shakespearean, especially in that first season and how he approached it. And 
And of course, we've all heard that story of how serious he was and the other castmates weren't. And he finally had to lay the gauntlet down and say, you know, we got to take this seriously. And they're basically like, <laughs> oh, come on, loosen up, dude. But um, we are not here, Denise, to have fun. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but a lot of that, you know, is part of his discipline. But I also thought that throughout his career, it wasn't like he was just serious all the time. He was kind of a fun guy and and loose. But I also felt like, you know, he also grew up in the discipline of the theater. And now that he has the weight of the series on his shoulders because he's the lead, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him. And so I think, you know, he was taking it more seriously than the others because I felt like he probably felt like it was make or break is on him, Mm -hmm. you know. But yeah, I mean, just the fact that, I mean, I, I think I'd like to know even more from him about really what he thought about putting the spandex on and, and walking around the ship and just be like, was he really just like, what the heck am I doing? This is so ridiculous, you know? <laughs> well, I love when he, he talks about how Ian McKellen was like, no, you mustn't do this. You can't leave the stage to go do this silly science fiction thing. It'll be nothing but ruin. And how he talks about years later, he just loves making Ian McKellen say he was wrong. <laughs> yeah, which is nice because, you know, he could fall into that stereotype and nobody wants to cast him in anything because they're going to say, well, all they're going to see is Captain Picard and, oh, you're the sci-fi captain guy. And, you know, and all he's getting his roles in science fiction. But no, I mean, it helped propel his career in the theater. Like he got even more mm. opportunities in the theater and, of course, in film and so it it didn't backfire on him. Yeah. But it was a very real concern. Like he says, there there was the one director of a movie who was like, why the hell would I want Jean-Luc Picard in my film? Right. Like, oh, that would be that would be scary as an actor to hear. Like, oh no, it's happening. <laughs> yeah, and there's many actors who've had big roles that they can't get out of it because mm-hmm. that's the, you know, they're so recognized as that character that's going to be jarring to the audience. At least that's what the director feels if they see them in this different role. So throughout this time, Patrick Stewart is living and working in LA and his wife is back in England with her own career kind of going on. And this is where we're seeing some strain happening and they're spending lots of time apart. And I suspect this is what you were referring to earlier when I was like, I didn't know this story. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> um, Jennifer Hetrick as Vash shows up in season three as a love interest for Jean-Luc Picard. And uh, apparently in real life, they uh, they were an item for a while. I had no idea. I had no idea either. I was shocked. I was like, wait. Am I the only Star Trek fan that hasn't heard this story? Like, did I miss something? You know, I mean, they met on the set and mm-hmm. started dating and he was married at the time and uh, they became a couple and eventually, you know, his marriage ended and I, how, I can't remember how long they were together, but quite a, they lived together for a while. I remember thinking while I was reading this, like, it's interesting that Star Trek fans, and and this is just speaking from my own perspective, we don't seem to be the tabloid chasing, like, we didn't know what all of our stars were up to at every moment of, of all the time. I'm sure there was probably a segment of fandom that did know that stuff or was kind of following that stuff because they were a tabloid item for a little bit, apparently. Yeah. But that was just so far removed from anything that I was thinking about 
when watching Star Trek or anything like that. I had no idea. And it's interesting that in this book, uh, he's so open about this stuff. I find that really refreshing. Like he's not, he's not doing the, the social media present everything as rosy as possible. And like, Ooh, let's hide the, the dirty parts and that kind of thing. He's laying himself bare for everyone and saying, this is the story of a man, not a perfect man, not, you know, the greatest, just, this is a, a human being who makes mistakes, who does all these things. This is, this is a life. I find that really interesting. Not in like a tawdry saucy way. He's just presenting it as this is what happened. And this is who I am. It, really interesting to me. I think this is a book that would have been different had he written this maybe 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think in his age and where he is in his life, I think he's comfortable enough to expose those things that he made mistakes at. And of course, the good things in his life too. But I would think maybe he's looking at his life and saying, you know, I know that there's these people that I'm writing about may read this and I want them to understand what happened at that time before, yeah. you know, I don't want to die and no one really understands those things. And I do have my regrets and I made my mistakes and, this is kind of my letter to them to let them know, you know, I'm sorry. And, and this is why. Yeah. When I finished the book, I was very much thinking of his children, Daniel and Sophie. And, uh, they were, he mentions quite a few times how his relationship, especially with Sophie became very estranged after, uh, he and, and her mother, separated and, and divorced. I, I really felt like a lot of this is in the hope that she would read and not necessarily forgive, not necessarily come running to him in open arms and yada yada, but maybe just understand a little bit of where he's coming from, not making excuses for what he did, acknowledging the mistakes he made, but just a little bit of understanding. I thought that that was what was kind of going through my head. I do find it nice that like he seems to have um, mended his relationship with Daniel quite a bit and, and they're very close. But uh, I feel whenever he writes about Sophie, I feel that regret coming through on the page and his sorrow at the fact that this relationship has been damaged. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice to know that she reads it, his daughter and him start speaking more or get a little closer or, or about the things in the book um, mm -hmm. and not wait until after he passes on, you know, to read the book and then understand to do it now, you know, and, mm -hmm. and she may not forgive some of the things of course, but I don't know. Our lives are too short and you know, we just, uh, people just need to talk. <laughs> yeah. You know, absolutely. Yeah. So moving on into his next relationship, I, I knew the name Wendy Noose and like that she was kind of a behind the scenes person. And I remembered hearing about some kind of relationship between her and Patrick Stewart. I was not aware they were married. I didn't know this was a, a, a second ended marriage uh, at some point. Uh, that was, they, they seemed really good together, but uh, that was another kind of, sadness on his part that that was kind of a, a 
a mistake or or a or an ending of a an important relationship to him there. I, I, I was starting to feel really bad for him at that point. <laughs> yeah, if I recall, I think even in that one there was uh, physical distance then in that relationship yeah. too. So you know things change unfortunately, and when there's a distance like that, um, it can create emotional distance or. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they just weren't the right match, you know? But they seemed like they were. Yeah, I think so. But uh, speaking of of matches or seeming if they would be matches, I've always in the back of my mind, and, and I feel guilty for it, I, I get called out a little bit as as one of the people in this book who thinks certain things or sees something on the surface and, and feels a certain way about it and it's not justified his current relationship that has been ongoing and, and uh, he's involved in right, right now, Sonny Ozell is uh, his current partner. And on the face of it, I'm not proud to admit, I remember when, you know, I saw a picture of them in public, certain terms go through your head that are less than, uh, less than complimentary. And I'm ashamed that I thought this, that, you know, like, Ooh, there's a big age disparity. What's, what's the motivations of the people in this relationship? Yada, yada, yada. Um, but reading about it here and learning more about who she is and finding out more about what their relationship is based on, uh, I'm 100%, 110% behind Patrick Stewart and Sonny's relationship. Like they seem so good together. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of like that part because he, basically pointed out that age is just a number, you know, Mm -hmm. and yeah, someone who could like, Oh, I'm older. I'm dating younger women can say that if they wanted to or whatever, but no, what he's really saying is, you know, you're, you are who you are, you know, and it's, it's what's in your spirit. Mm -hmm. And at my age of 56, I hear more things of, you know, you basically are the age that you feel in a sense, Mm -hmm. because there's people my age that people, (laughs) I'm just thinking of one specific example. Um, I I won't go too much into it, but there's somebody that my group of friends knows, and we found out that he's a year younger than me, and we all thought he was 10 years older than me, you know? (laughs) And because he looks that way, he acts that way, like he just acts and looks older than me, And yet people think I'm usually younger than what I am. And then, you know, I have friends, you know, I I, I mean, my group of friends varies in ages. And I mean, I've got friends that are 20, 30 years younger than me. And I've got friends who are not much older than my oldest daughter, which is really weird when you sit down and think about it. But I've said to them, like, ah, I don't know. You know, I guess I'm an old guy. And they're like, we don't think of you that way. We think of you (laughs) like basically our age. We know you're not our age, but we just kind of, you know. Because of just the way I am versus like the way that guy was. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is when he got to that part, I really related to the fact that it's like it doesn't really matter what his number of his age is and what hers is. They're adults and there's Mm -hmm. a common spirit between the two that just fits and matches. Yeah. And complements each other. And and they don't need to look at the page and go, oh, mine has this number and yours has this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's so clear like watching them together and like they're, they're active on social media. You can see a lot of what they get up to and, and they're just such a perfect fit. Like they work together so well. Um, and something that he said about age really resonated with me where he said, like, he feels like he's 40 and 
He's felt like he's 40 for a very long time, basically since he was about 12. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. he's been 40 his whole life. And I get that. Like, I remember, again, just one of those random things I remember with perfect clarity. I was about 12 or 13 years old uh, talking to somebody and, and I was saying something. I I can't remember exactly what it was. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, did you know? Blah, 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 blah. And this kid who's my age turns to me. He's like, you're like the youngest 30 year old I've ever met. <laughs> I was like, what? But like that really stuck with me. And it kind of, you know, when I was younger, I was always like, people are always like, oh, you're, you're like old person with your values and what you think and all this kind of stuff. And now as I'm older in my forties, I still feel 30. <laughs> like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I just kind of, that's where I am. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking as you're saying that my wife, I mean, you know, I met her, she was in her late twenties and she's kind of an old soul. And I guess you could say, and I feel like she's grown into her, <laughs> into her age <laughs> like mm. that she was, but um, you know, yeah, everybody's different. Like, Honestly, I I don't I don't like to say what I feel like I am, but I do not feel like I'm 56. Like I I just realized the other day that I'm the age my father-in-law was at our wedding. Oh wow! And yeah. I remember at the time thinking not that he was old, but I remember thinking <laughs> he was old. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm that age. I've also realized I'm two years older than my dad was when he retired. Mm-hmm. And I don't even feel close to retire. I'd like to retire. Wouldn't that be nice? But I mean, it's just a different perspective on things. And so, yeah, when I see a picture of me and my castmates and something, and I'm typically one of the oldest, luckily I'm always like the second oldest, <laughs> <laughs> but I always look at the picture and go, oh my gosh, look how much older I look compared to everybody. But at that moment, I don't think that. I almost feel like mm-hmm. we're all the same. I'm not even thinking age, right? It's so weird. Yeah. It really is just a number. So Patrick Stewart and Sonny together, they just, they're so, so much fun. And maybe that's what he's discovered is that he's a young soul, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe the other women he was, weren't as playful and young as he was. And now he's found one. That could very well be. Yeah. It's, it's funny because again, as we've mentioned, we think of him as so, you know, stentorian and, and, you know, ramrod straight and oh, no, he's, he's goofy. He plays around. There's the video that's mentioned in this book and I had to look it up. Same. It appeared, it apparently went viral at the time. I didn't see it, but, uh, he's very candid about this. He and Sonny were doing MDMA and <laughs> recorded a video about the quadruple take. <laughs> and it is worth checking out if you search Patrick Stewart quadruple take. It is fun. <laughs> I won't say too much more about that. Um, but I, I will say uh, he talks a bit about bringing the, the character back of Jean-Luc Picard to the Star Trek universe. And this is the part of the book where Patrick Stewart and me and you intersect at one point, That's which is right. very fun. He talks about being on stage at the, the 2018 STLV and announcing that Picard would be, would be back to the screams of fans. And one of those screams was me. I was there. And so were you. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought the same thing. I was like, Oh, I was there. 
yeah, like you said, this is the point we intersected, you know. <laughs> but uh, and I'm sure he's thinking about us, Dan. He, oh, he remembers us out yeah. there in the audience, right? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but I think that's the other thing I appreciated about the book was like, I, again, it's like, what does he really think of Star Trek? I mean, we've talked about his theater career and Shakespeare and all these other great plays that he's done and then a tv show i mean yes star trek's fun it's well especially the next generation had some really great episodes and there's a lot of well-written episodes and he enjoyed the cast but really what does he think of star trek and again I, it's it sounds to me as if he really appreciates it i mean yeah mm -hmm. he doesn't want to do that as his career he does love the stage he wants to do other things but he doesn't have a problem going back to that character even though he did not want to return for star trek picard it wasn't because he didn't like the character. It wasn't that he didn't like Star Trek. It's because been there, done that. Like he wants to keep doing different things. And that's what sold them into the series is was we're going to approach this character differently. It's a different time of his life. You know, who is Captain Picard or who is Jean-Luc Picard now all these years later? And he relates to that. And he's looking because he's a different person than he was years ago. And so that's, you know, that nugget of doing something different, which by season three, he's like, ah, I just kind of gave in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that worked, you know, and I loved hearing that he enjoyed it. And he also loved joining, uh, enjoyed doing X-Men. So he liked those those uh, roles. Yeah, I, I loved his caveats. You know, I'm not going to wear a uniform or badge of any kind. This is not going to be a reunion with all the TNG folks. And yeah, by the end, it's like, oh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was funny yeah it's like he got it he got it out of his system to do something different and okay fine let's go to the other stuff too yeah so one thing that i found interesting as well was uh when season three of picard ended patrick stewart talked about how he had this idea for an ending to the series and he really wanted to do it and Eventually the producers went a different way and, and that story gets talked about in here. But at the time when he, he was talking about this in an interview, he never said what the original ending was. And he was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say what it was reading this book. I found out it was so that like he could tempt fans with finding that out in this book. So I'm going to honor that. I'm not going to tell you what his original ending for season three of Star Trek Picard was, but if you read making it so a memoir, you will find that out. So if you were as tantalized as I was when he was talking about that, uh, the answer to that is in this book as to what his final scene of Picard would have been, but ultimately it was not filmed and is not part of the show. So uh, that was interesting. I, I finally got an answer to that because I was always curious. <laughs> yeah, and I won't reveal it either, but uh, it would been it would have been a great ending for the character Picard, but the way they ended season three kept the Picard character more open to something mm. maybe down the road. So if you were going to close the chapter on him, that would have been a good way. But if you want to kind of keep it open just in case, then the way they did it, Gives, you, gives them that room. Yeah. And as we've heard in lots of interviews and stuff, and as he mentions again in the memoir here, he has been sort of pushing Paramount to do a Picard movie <laughs> again. So maybe, maybe it's not the last we've seen of Picard. Uh, I'm sure 
they look at the the Nielsen numbers that came in for Picard season three and I don't know, that might make them open to doing something because uh the the see the series finale for Picard was the most watched of the new Star Trek stuff so far, apparently. So yeah, yeah. never know. I'm I'm for it. Uh, why not? Absolutely. So the final thing I wanted to talk about, and this kind of relates to bringing the character of Picard back in the the new shows and stuff, uh, is blurring the lines between the actor and the character. And I thought this was really fascinating that at the towards the 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 end of what we what we know so far of Patrick Stewart's life and what we know so far of of Jean Luc Picard's life he sees this kind of blurring of the lines between the actor and the character. And uh, that also very much relates, I think, to this uh, mysterious ending to season three that he talked about. But I thought that was fascinating that like, as, as he goes further forward, there's less of a separation between these characters. And hopefully that's not the case with him and Charles Xavier, as we saw in, in the movie Logan, that that seems <laughs> to be a direction that you don't want to take. But Picard, yeah, I can see that between those two. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you come into a new series like he did in The Next Generation, he doesn't have a whole lot of say. He's he's fitting into the role that they've written for the series. But then you start to become – or that role starts to become more like you, especially in the series. You know, and I've heard other actors, even like William Shatner, saying like basically he's playing himself as Kirk, you know, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And – and all of a sudden you have, as an actor, more input into what is done with the character. And then they, as the writers start to learn more about the actor, they see aspects of the actor, like their family life growing up or whatever, and start to infuse that into the character. So, yeah, over time, that that divide between the character and the actor does start to blur and blur. And as he went into Star Trek Picard, he's one of the executive producers. He was in the writer's room. I mean, yeah, it, it becomes more and more his attributes into that character and that, that blur between the two is there. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Even in, uh, in, in very broad strokes, but even in very subtle ways, like in season two of Picard, it's like, uh, it's like, oh, where did the Picard family move when they, they left France before they came? Oh, England. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So now we're canonically bringing, you know, his English background into the character and stuff. And, uh, you know, his relationships with his, his colleagues and his friends and his romantic relationships. And like, all of that is kind of in this big melting pot that is part Jean-Luc Picard and part Patrick Stewart. It's really, that's kind of cool as an actor. That would be an interesting thing to play with. Like, where do I stop and where does this character begin? So Jean-Luc, your family moved from France to England. Where in England? Uh, Murfield. Yes, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess uh, that kind of brings us to the end of, of making it so a memoir. So I guess, uh, final thoughts. I, I don't know necessarily that we want to give a rating. I guess mine would be top marks. Like I loved this. I think it's an incredible read. How do you, how do you give a man's life a scale of five stars? I don't, I don't know how that works, but, uh, the experience of reading this book was incredibly fun. Um, how about you? What what are some of your final thoughts on this? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I don't think I was all that excited to go into it because I didn't know, you know, because at first I'm just like, look, I love Star Trek, but do I really want to know 
Patrick Stewart's life. I mean, it might be boring or it might be all these tales of Star Trek that I've heard before. You know, I don't know. But when I went into it, and like I said, in the first just couple chapters or so, I was invested in it. I found it very interesting. Even if I didn't even know who Patrick Stewart was, I would found this read to be very interesting to me. And it inspired me, you know, inspired me to once again, just follow follow those paths that lay in front of you and take advantage of them and and live those dreams and and move forward with it. And yeah, as everyone's life, there's good, there's bad that he's also experienced. And it was just an entertaining read. It it was natural. You know, it felt like he is sitting there and talking to you. And therefore, I think that's why the audiobook was is probably very interesting to listen mm-hmm. to because it might feel one-on-one like he's telling you personally his story. So yeah, top marks, like I said, yeah, I don't know, five stars, five planets, five universes, whatever <laughs> you want to give it, but top marks all around. I can see myself going back to this book again someday. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so much fun. And, and like I said, I, I already have people lined up behind me to borrow it now that I've finished it. So, uh, it's so good. It's, I, I, I feel like the, the mission of this book was to really make you feel like, you know, who this person is, um, for good or for ill, it, it, it gets into everything. Um, he's very frank and candid about his life and, I had so much fun reading it, especially about things that I have no exposure to, like living and growing up in England and acting on stage with the Royal Shakespeare Company. The parts of this novel that I enjoyed the most were the non-Star Trek parts. But even for the Star Trek parts where I'd heard some of the stories before, to hear them in his own words laid out like this is a treat as well. So there's no part of this book that I didn't enjoy. Absolutely top marks for it, for sure. So, well, there we have it. Go out. If you haven't already got this, go buy it. I'm sure you can find some Boxing Day sales or something. (laughs) We're, I guess we're after Boxing Day now, but now it's all Boxing Week and I'm sure there's New Year's sales now and stuff. Any excuse to get sales going. Uh, This has been so much fun. Thank you so much, Bruce, for joining me again for the Positively Trek Book Club. It's always great to be back here sitting in this room with you, Dan. Well, (laughs) we're not in the same room together, but (laughs) I like to pretend we are. It feels like we are, which is nice. (laughs) Well, we've got other stuff coming up on the Positively Trek book club over uh, in the new year. We're recording this. This will be the, the final episode to come out in 2023, 2024. Uh, Brandy Jackla and I are going to be doing a big catch up on the ongoing Star Trek and Star Trek defiant comic book series that have been going on. Really looking forward to that. I've started reading some of those. They are wild, uh, mm-hmm. going in places I never would have expected. One might say going where no one has gone before. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And of course, we have the regular flagship show episodes of Positively Trek continuing in the new year as well. So thank you so much for joining us. We will see you again sometime soon. Until then, as always, live long and prosper, stay positive, and have a happy new year. Make it so.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.